Hey, good morning, Rogers Park. I'm Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the elders here. Do some of the teaching, and it's great to have you with us this morning. Justin and Anna, great to see you. Uh, love having you here. Love what you're doing in North Africa. I'm uh, really grateful for you and your ministry. Um, hey, if you've got a Bible, you can find the book of Job. The book of Job this morning. We're going to preach all of it today. I'm not kidding. We're going to go through the whole thing. That's where we're going to be this morning. But uh, I want to start by telling you a little story. Um, so my wife, Kinsey, and I, we have a friend named Lindsay. I worked with Lindsay for a few years right out of college and was really impressed with Lindsay's faithfulness. She was just a quality woman all the way around, just a really good-hearted, good person. And a few years after we worked together, Lindsay moved on to another job and moved to another city. And when she got to this new city, she met a man named Kevin. And Kevin was just a great guy. And they got together and they ended up getting married. And it was kind of a fairy tale story. Lindsay was in her early 30s when they got married. She wanted to be married for a long time. Finally got married. And uh, shortly thereafter, she got pregnant. So they're super excited. They're going to welcome their first child into the world. They named her uh, early on, gave her the name Sophie. And we're super excited to welcome Sophie into the world. And then they had their 20-week ultrasound. This is one of those big ones. Some of you young parents, you've been there, or maybe right now some of you are pregnant and you've literally just had this experience, but going for their 20-week ultrasound, they're excited to see the pictures and, you know, learn more about their baby. And as they're going for this ultrasound, the doctor comes out and informs them that their baby actually has a very rare, extremely rare brain condition known as anencephaly. And what happens with this condition is that babies grow normally inside the womb physically, except while they're developing, their brains do not develop. And so children with this condition are born fully fully formed, but then they live for only a few moments before they pass away. So Kevin and Lindsay decided to keep this child. They were encouraged to seek an abortion and they they decided not to do that and they go through the pregnancy. And uh, time comes in September when they're due to have this child. And Sophie comes out of the womb, just like any other child, kicking and screaming and making noise. And then Sophie lives for 10 hours where their family and friends gather around them. They celebrated her little life. And then they said goodbye to Sophie. Well, fast forward about six months. Lindsay gets pregnant again. And they name the girl Desa. And they're excited they're going to have a baby. And uh, they go in for their 12-week ultrasound. And against all odds at this 12-week ultrasound, they're informed that this baby has a very similar brain condition to Sophie. And so they go forward for the next six months through this pregnancy in the knowledge that they're preparing for the unimaginable pain that they know is going to come when they say hello and goodbye to Desa just as they did with Sophie. And sure enough, in November, just a little over a year after saying hello and goodbye to Sophie, they welcome Desa into the world only to say goodbye 12 hours later. Kevin and Lindsay are good people. They're good people. And their story of suffering raises one of the great questions of life. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know all of you today and I don't know all of your stories. But I am certain that today some of you have experienced some really bad things in your life. Bad things you didn't ask for. Bad things you didn't deserve. And yet those bad things still happen to you. And you've been left asking the question, why? Why me? Why this? Why? Well, this summer we've been in a series called Great Stories, where we've looked at some of the great stories, the most significant stories in the Old Testament scriptures. Today we're looking at the story of Job. Job is a story with which I'm sure many of you are very familiar. 
Job is a good man who's gotten good things in his life. In chapter one of the story, we find out that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job is called the greatest man of all the people of the East. So Job has a big family, he's got a big house, he's got lots of stuff, lots of money, lots of influence. Everything goes well for Job in life. He's got everything and life is good for him. He's a good man and good things happen to him. Until they don't anymore. All of a sudden, lots and lots of bad things start to happen to this good person. Unbeknownst to Job, Satan comes to God and he basically says to God, hey, look, Job is only good because you've given him everything. If you take away all the stuff you've given him, if if you take away the blessings he's received, then Job will curse you. He'll turn away from you. And so God gives Satan permission and in quick succession, Job loses everything. Neighboring peoples invade his land and take his stuff and kill his servants. A windstorm comes and knocks down a house where all his children are feasting and all of his kids die at the same time. And when despite all of that, Job still worships and blesses God, in chapter two, Satan ups the ante and he comes and he takes Job's health, striking Job with these loathsome sores, boils that are all over his body. And so Job's stuff, his family, even his health, all of his good things are gone. See, Job is a story of a good person who has bad things happen to him. And like Lindsay's story and like some of our own stories, Bad things happen to a good person and it begs the question, why? Why? Now the first two chapters of this book tell the beginning of Job's story. And the last chapter tells the end of Job's story. But in between are 39 chapters of Hebrew poetry where Job and his friends and eventually God go round and around and around about this question, why? And to get to the heart of that question, today we're going to do something a little different. Job is one of the finest works in all of ancient literature. The story is compelling, but the heart of this book is actually the poetry that makes up over 90% of the text. And it is in that poetry that we find the point of the whole story. And so today I've asked a few of our friends here to be actors and actresses and to come up on stage and to read some of the poetry and perform some of the drama for us. And so today we're going to see three acts in this great drama. After each of the first two, I will come up and I'll give us a little context. I'll orient us and help us understand what's happening. And then after act three, I'll come back and I'll draw some conclusions and pull some things together. And so without further delay, please welcome Job. And he will be reading, he'll be sharing lines from Job chapter three, if you want to follow along in your Bible. Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived... Let that day be darkness. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb. Nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out of the womb and expire. Why did the knees accept me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and found rest. Why is light given to those who are in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not. And dig for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. 
for my sighing comes instead of bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So Job is in anguish. He has been served a bitter cocktail of suffering. In chapter 2, verse 11, three of Job's friends hear of all the evil that has come upon Job. And they each travel from their own homes to show him sympathy and to comfort him, to be with him. They tear their clothes and they sit in the dirt and for a full week they weep together with him. And after that week passes, the poem that Nick just presented is the first thing that Job says. It is a death wish poem where he laments having ever been born. Imagery of darkness, clouds, and night abound in this poem. The trajectory of the whole thing is down and in, contracting life to the point of extinction. Job hurts so bad inside and out that he wants nothing more than to die. And he says so. Job is remarkably honest in the midst of his suffering. He does not hold back. Now in the next 35 chapters, Job's friends are going to respond to that honesty. As we watch act two of this drama unfold, I want you to pay close attention to how Job's friends respond. What do they say to Job? What's their perspective on his suffering? What's his perspective on his suffering? I want you to think about their answers to the question of why bad things happen as you watch act two. So here's act two drawn from Job chapters four through 31. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and that all my calamity laid in the balances. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, or that he would loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparingly, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. But he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. How long will you say these things, and your words be a great wind, if you will seek the Lord and plead with the Almighty for mercy? If you are pure and upright, surely he will arouse himself to you and restore your rightful habitation. Truly, I know that is so, but how can a man be right before God? Though I am in the right, my own mouth condemns me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Therefore, I say, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? I loathe my life. Should a multitude of words go unanswered, 
and a man full of talk be judged right. For you say my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. I am a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughingstock. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians you all are. But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we count as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. His light is dark in his tent, and this lamp above his head is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes cause him to fall. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know that from this, from of old, since man has been placed on earth, and the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. How then can man be considered in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon does not shine, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? All of my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I trust have turned against me. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. My foot has held fast to his steps, and I have kept his way and not turned aside. If I have walked with falsehood, and my foot has hastened to deceit, or if my heart has enticed toward a woman, if I have laid in wait from my neighbor's door, if I have rejected the cause of anything that the poor have desired, or, or have caused the eyes of the wicked to fail, or, or have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or, or the needy without covering, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, or, or if I have rejoiced because my wealth is abundant, this would be iniquity to be punished for the judges. For I would have been false to God above. If I have concealed my transgressions if others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, oh, that I would have one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer. That was phenomenal. Thank you, guys. This is how the world works. God is just. Therefore, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. So a few years ago in Bogota, Colombia, a man ripped a woman's phone from her hand at a bus stop. He took a few steps running away with the phone and then he was hit by a bus. 
And the whole thing was captured on surveillance video and then broadcast by the media around the world for the whole world to see. Bad things happen to bad people, right? That same year, homeless man Billy Ray Harris found an expensive ring on the street. At great cost to himself, he tracked down the owner to return this ring. Shortly thereafter, in the next week, he was blessed with a place to live and over $100,000 in donations. See, good things happen to good people because God is just. That's how the world works. Everything that Job and his friends have said in the passages that were just read derives from this same central assumption. We're going to call it the strict principle of justice. The strict principle of justice. Job and his friends all believe that if you are wise and good, you will get success and reward and blessing. And if you are evil and foolish, you will get disaster and punishment as a result. And based on this strict principle, Job's friends make the argument that Job must be bad. Job, you're getting bad things. You're getting hit by the bus because you must have stolen the lady's phone. It's the only explanation. God gives what we deserve, and so this must be what you deserve, Job. Now, many of us believe the same thing today. We call it parenting. We teach our kids to be good so that good things will happen to them in life. Others of us call it karma or common sense or the law of reaping and sowing. And y'all, there is truth in this principle. Often, this is the way the world works, as in the two stories that I just shared. But the key word here is the word often. Often, this is how the world works. But certainly not always. Certainly not always. The reality is that life is far more complex than the strict principle of justice can allow for. And Job's situation is the prime example. Here's Job. And we know that Job is innocent. And Job knows that he is innocent. But Job's friends don't know that about him. They think he must be guilty because these bad things are happening to him. But Job really is good people. And in the face of his unfriendly friend's accusations, he repeatedly and vehemently professes his innocence. He's saying over and over again, look, I'm the guy who gives back the ring. I should be getting blessing, not consequence, not punishment. I deserve something good in return. But it's not happening that way. So why? Why? And because Job, like his friends, believes this same principle, he's really confused by the situation he finds himself in. His situation doesn't fit into his neat little paradigm of how the world is supposed to be. And for that reason, when Job's friends point the finger at him, what Job does is then he points the finger at God. He says, God, look, good things are supposed to happen to good people like me. That's how the world is supposed to work. And so God, the problem here isn't with me. It must be with you. You must be doing something wrong. You're not keeping the rules. You're not playing fair. And so Job, at the end of his speech there, what he does is he demands an audience with God. Job appeals to a heavenly supreme court and he demands a hearing. And a hearing Job will have. While all of this dialogue has been happening, a storm has been brewing on the horizon. The clouds have begun to darken and swirl as in Job's death wish poem. And chapter 38 begins with this introduction. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... And so here is Act 3, drawn from Job's conversation with God in chapters 38 to 42. And as you hear this conversation, pay close attention to what God says to Job and how Job then responds. Act 3. 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Or who shut, the, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoke once, I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Just for action like a man. I will question you, you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are like tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? or press down his tongue with a cord. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs, or his mighty strength, or his godly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who will come near him with a brittle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth is terror? His back is made up of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. And his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is the king over all the sons of pride. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. <laughs> you said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I have heard you from the hearing of my ears. And now I see you with my eyes. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent with dust and ashes. Thanks, guys. So after all of this, beginning in chapter 42, verse 7, the Lord speaks to Job's friends a word of rebuke. 
He says, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job then offers a sacrifice and he prays for his friends. And then the Lord restores Job's fortunes with twice as much as he had before. Job goes on to live 140 years and dies an old man full of days. And that's how the book ends. Now this ending has often puzzled readers. God shows up in a storm. He gives no explanation at all for why any of this happened to Job in the first place. He sarcastically asks Job how good he is at tossing lightning bolts around. And then he says, Job, you were right all along. And then he gives him back all of his stuff plus more. So what's going on here? Well, in Act 3, we just saw and heard a sample of God's answer to that question. Fittingly for the lips of God, this speech in Act 3 is the grandest and most intricate poetry in the book. Where Job's death wish poem crashes down and in, God's whirlwind speech soars up and out. God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. From creation to the cosmos, from the foundations of the earth to the farthest reaches of space. He explores meteorology and zoology, the weather and the animals. And in this grand tour, do you know what God is doing? What God is doing is he's lifting Job up and out of himself and his small, narrow view of the world to give him a wide-angle panorama of all of creation and all of its complexity. In God's closing argument in chapter 40, God begins by asking Job if he'd like a shot at running the whole world with all of that complexity, a world where the line between good and evil is often quite hazy. And then God finishes in a somewhat unexpected place. If you've got your Bible, you can look at chapter 40, verse 15. Starting in this verse, God draws Job's attention to two great animals, behemoth and leviathan. Behemoth and leviathan. Now these are most likely a hippopotamus and a crocodile being described in embellished mythical language. And these two exotic beasts become the clincher in God's closing argument. But why? It's kind of a strange place to finish. Why does God bring these two creatures into the conversation? Well, it's because of what these two creatures represent. Behemoth and Leviathan are both dangerous and delightful at the same time. They are not evil. God is really proud of them in the way that he describes them. He made them and he made them awesome. These beasts are marvelous and majestic. And God is kind of bragging about them here, talking about how how great they are. But at the same time, These beasts aren't safe either. You don't play tag with a crocodile. If you do, you end up like Captain Hook. So behemoth and Leviathan are symbols of danger and delight. And do you know what else is filled with both danger and delight? This world that we live in. Our world. Right here, this one that we live in. This world that God made is both, is amazing and is filled with goodness. There are great things everywhere, marvels everywhere. And yet this world is far from perfect and it's certainly not always safe. Danger lurks around many corners. Order and beauty abound, but so too do disorder and danger, just like with behemoth and Leviathan. And so in his speech, do you see what God is doing? God is blowing up Job's paradigm for how the world should be. Job and his friends naively believe that everything should happen according to the strict principle of justice. And God lifts Job up and out of that neat little box to show him that the world is far more complex than that. Good things don't always happen to good people and bad things don't always happen to bad people. God is good and God is just, but God's purposes are more mysterious and God's plans are more grand than anything that can be captured by that strict principle of justice alone. 
See, in his speech, God doesn't explain why suffering exists in our world. There's other places in the Bible you can go to to get some of that. But in his speech, God doesn't go there. He doesn't tell Job why any of the horrible things that happened to him happened. Job never finds out about the heavenly drama that led to his ordeal in the first place. And in that sense, Job doesn't get answers. But Job does get something else. What Job gets is a new perspective. He gets a new perspective. Look at Job's response in 42.1. After all that has transpired in his life and in this story, Job says this. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then in 42.3, he says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In the end, Job sees that the world is more complex than he previously thought. So like with instant replay in sports, God took Job under the hood and then Job came out with a new perspective. He saw things from a different angle. But a new perspective is not the only thing that God gives him. There's one more thing, and it's really the key to this whole book. Look at what Job says in chapter 42, verse 5. He begins, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. So prior to this whole ordeal, Job had heard of God. He knew that God was out there somewhere. But now, he continues, but now after all of this, through all this suffering, all this pain, all this loss, after all this, but now my eye sees you. But now my eye sees you. Through his suffering and through God's speech, Job now sees God. So Job has not been given an answer, but Job has been given the gift of sight. God has not given Job answers. Instead, God has given Job himself. He has said to Job, essentially, I am here and I am with you. I am here and I am with you. Now, after all of this, in verse 10, we see the Lord restore Job's fortunes and bless the end of his life more than the beginning. But it's before any of that happens that Job says what he says in verse 5. It's while the suffering continues. It's while the boils on his skin continue to blister. It's while he's still bereft of all of his property. It's while he's still mourning the death of all of his children. It is in the midst of all of his suffering that Job repents of his accusations and his attitude toward God. And in the midst of all of his suffering, Job rests satisfied with God. He sees God. God is with him and that is enough for him. And so in the end, what we see in the book of Job is a man who has learned through suffering to suffer well. A man who has learned through suffering to suffer well. Suffering is inevitable in our world. It is unavoidable. And yet most of us do not know how to suffer well. Suffering for us, especially in our modern world of comfort and convenience, is seen as an interruption at best and an inconvenience in our lives. It interferes with and sometimes robs us of all that we hold dear. Our relationships, our possessions, our hobbies, our health. And so what we do in our modern world is we strive to avoid suffering at all costs. And when suffering still comes and when we end up losing those things inevitably, we lose everything. Suffering ruins us. We don't know how to handle it. But in this story, suffering does not ruin Job. 
Instead, Job learns a better way through his suffering. Job loses all of those things, but he doesn't lose everything. And so what characterizes this better way of suffering that we see in Job? Well, this better way of suffering begins with integrity. Begins with integrity. When Job's suffering begins in chapter 2, verse 9, his wife questions him and says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And the whole book of Job answers her question with a resounding yes. Yes, I hold fast my integrity, Job says. I will not curse God. I will not sin against him despite my circumstances. When we suffer, the temptation can come to turn away from God. Maybe you're angry with God and you want him to feel the pain that you're feeling. Or maybe you just hurt so bad you look elsewhere to numb the pain. You turn to alcohol or drugs or porn or Netflix. Look, if that's you right now, resolve like Job not to sin in your suffering. Instead, suffer with integrity. Suffer with integrity. Then a better way of suffering, it requires honesty. It requires honesty. Some say it's not okay to question God, but one of the remarkable things about the ending to Job is that God actually says of Job in 42.7 and 42.8 that Job has spoken rightly of him. Job is not condemned for being honest with God about his pain and his suffering. Just the opposite. He's confirmed in it. And this confirmation for Job is an encouragement for us. Job was right to be honest before God. And the same is true for us. Job gets mad at God. Job feels abandoned by God. Job feels like God is not being fair. But he doesn't run from God with those feelings. Instead, he runs to God and he tells God all about it. He's brutally honest with God. And that's what you and I need to do in our suffering too. We need to be honest with God about it. It's okay to pray angry or to pray sad. God can handle your emotion. He can handle what you're feeling. But you need to be honest with him with it instead of running away from him with it. He wants you to come to him with your pain. And so suffer with honesty. Suffer with honesty. And then finally, a better way of suffering, it ends with trust. It ends with trust. A few weeks ago, Pastor Phil preached on Hebrews 11. And in that sermon, he brought up little Ezra Pennington up here on stage to do a little trust fall. So Ezra stood on a little box right here and he, he fell back into Phil's arms. And those of you who are here, you saw this. And those of you who weren't, you can picture this because you've seen this a million times. But Ezra's trust fall wasn't actually all that trusting. I'm not picking on him, it's just true, right, Jackie? Like Ezra's trust fall wasn't all that trusting. It was pretty wavering. Like he fell, but he, he fell kind of cautiously. He kind of tried to catch himself. He wasn't certain that Phil was going to catch him. He, he went backwards, but he put his foot down, right? And that's how Job is throughout most of this book. He's trying to trust God. He's trying to, but he's not sure about it. He doesn't understand what's happening. And, 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 he, and he falls, but he's not fully falling. He's kind of wavering as he does it. But then in the end, once God appears to him, once he sees God through his suffering, what Job does is he stands tall and straight and he falls back into the waiting arms of the God who he knows now is going to catch him. He falls back knowing that God is going to be there to catch him. And that is one of the great themes of the great stories we've been looking at all summer long. God is a great God who is worthy of great trust. You can fall into his arms and he will catch you. He will catch you. You can trust him fully because he's fully trustworthy. 
And the point of the book of Job is to point us to this God. This God we see so vividly in Job. This awesome, all-powerful, all-wise, all-good, compassionate, merciful, present God. And to encourage us to suffer like Job with integrity and honesty and trust. But most significantly to suffer with God. To suffer with God. Suffering is inevitable in life. And what Job is encouraging, what this book is encouraging us to do is to suffer with God rather than without him. Now I began this morning by sharing the tragic story of my friend Lindsay and her two daughters. And I want to finish this morning by reading you something that Lindsay wrote about a year after losing her second daughter. This is from Lindsay in a blog post that's titled, Why I Would Not Trade My Story for Another. Listen to this. Lindsay writes, I studied Job many months ago and was struck by the fact that it was out of Job's deep lament before God that God revealed himself to Job in a way that he had never seen before. I longed for that, to know God in such a profoundly deep way. And I sense that this journey God is taking me on and teaching me to lament and teaching me to wrestle towards him is giving me a taste of what Job says in Job 42. And then she shares a prayer she'd written in her journal a few months earlier. This is her prayer. Lord, I want a different story so badly. I want a different story so badly. I do not wish that death invaded my life so abruptly, so painfully. But if this is the way to you, if this is the way to know, to taste your glory, your majesty, then I receive it. With arms wide open and tears of joy mixed with pain running down my cheeks and breaths of hope mingled with often suffocating loss, so be it. Not only so be it, but a resounding yes, Lord. Yes to the story you've chosen for our lives. I do not understand it. I do not claim to know the depth of your ways or the greatness of your love in this story, but I know it is intertwined throughout. And listen to this. I would not trade my story for another, for in doing so, I would lose so much. Perhaps it would seem I have already lost so much. But whatever was lost, I consider as gain. In fact, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And finally, Lindsay comments on this prayer. She says, this I know, that today I love you more than I did two years ago. But more than that, today your greatness, your glory, your profound worthiness in my life is both more a mystery and more clear at the same time. Your holiness has been revealed to me in ways I never knew. Your greatness at the cross is clearer because the reality of the tomb being empty is more profound. Life has won, death is defeated, and you, Lord, have become my greatest hope. Yes, yes to your ways, for your ways are good and right, and even in death, your ways lead to life. Do you see the better way of suffering in Lindsay's words? That is what God offers you in the midst of your suffering too. So why do bad things happen to good people? Well, at the end of the day, Job gets no answers to that particular question. But Job does, in fact, get a final answer from God. In the end, God says to Job, I am here and I am with you. 
suffer with me. And in this way, Job points us forward to the place in history where God most profoundly says to us, I am here and I am with you. Many centuries after Job, there came another and even better righteous sufferer. The greatest man of all who faced the greatest storm of all. And in that way, the wounds of Job point us ahead to the wounds of Jesus. Like Job, Jesus did not sin or charge God with wrong. And like Job, undeserved suffering came upon him. He suffered the loss of those dear to him as many betrayed or denied him in his hour of greatest need. He suffered the agonizing physical pain of Roman crucifixion. And most significantly, he suffered the full force of the storm of the wrath of God. All so that we could hear a voice of love from God saying, I am here and I am with you. Jesus is the ultimate Job. And he invites you to bring him your pain and your suffering and to put your trust in him. And he who not only died for us, but also rose from the grave and defeated death, the risen Jesus promises that one day, one day the storms of life will all be over. And on that day, you and I will see him face to face. And so until that day, live like Job. Live with integrity, walking uprightly, refusing to sin in your suffering. Live with honesty, bringing your whole heart to God. And live with trust, relying on the one whose ways are beyond the horizons of our understanding. He is here and he is with you. Suffer with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Job. Thank you for this, for this story and thank you for the words that we heard today. Father, life can be hard sometimes. I don't know what people are going through in this room, but whatever it is, whatever, whatever suffering those of us here are enduring, I pray that today we would bring it to you. And whatever suffering comes in the future, that in that future day we would bring it to you. That we would always be people who suffer with you that in our pain, in what hurts, we would come to the one who knows and who cares and who can do something about it. Father, we thank you for Jesus who gave his life, who entered into the suffering of this world that we might have life and that one day who defeated death and defeated sin so that one day we could experience a life without pain and suffering. Pray for the hastening of that day and until that day helps to be faithful, to trust in you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.